0: So, let's turn to John chapter 9, and as we start, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and we pray that you will speak to us, to our hearts and minds, that we'll be shaped by your word, that as we go out, we can, uh, we can live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, when I moved to the United States in 1992, I was... Surprised of how wonderfully self-assured people in the U.S. are. So their humility is really not very encouraged. So um, I remember asking an American friend if he was good at ping pong, and his answer was, I'm awesome. (laughs) And since then, I tend to say things like that. I'm really good at this. I'm really awesome at this. And that is because I have an overblown sense of self-image and an inaccurate one. But even then, I certainly wouldn't say anything like what Jesus said in verse 5. I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. And please don't mistake this for anything less than it actually is. This claim is is, 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 is this claim that no sane man can make. What he's saying is that he's the one who allows people to see, to enjoy the colors of the autumn leaves, the radiance of the sun the sparkle of the ocean he is the one who allows everyone to see he's saying that he is the one who makes sense out of the world as well uh, 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 out of life here on earth nothing makes sense in darkness because you can't see you don't know where you're going you can't see what's around you he is also saying that he is everything holy and good and all the goodness of the earth It's just a pale reflection of who he is. I am the light of the world, he says. He is the great I am. And in our reading in in chapter 9, we have a man who lived in darkness. A man who was born blind. In order to imagine what life was like as a blind person back then, you have to dispel images of nice, fluffy, golden retrievers and... Brails and you know um, the handicap ramps and parking spaces and things like that. He sat at the roadside and begged. He had no employment, no prospect for marriage, no social honor. He probably was dirty all the time. Darkness constantly surrounded him, and he stumbled as he walked. He had never seen anything. In his life, he had never seen anything, not the not, not, not face of other people, not even his own face, because he was born blind. This man had no life, no hope, and no future. And as many of you can imagine, I, I, I can already guess physical blindness here in cha- chapter 9 is an analogy for spiritual blindness, for sin in Gospel of John is equated with darkness. In one commentator's words, the man expresses the human condition prior to meeting Christ. Blind from birth, the man represents the fallen humanity languishing in darkness of ignorance and sin without the hope of salvation. Well, if the blindness of the man represents the condition of humanity apart from Christ... Well, his, uh, his healing represents his salvation, his turning to Christ. Jesus is the light of the world, and he sees Christ physically, but also spiritually. He's cured of the blindness. So, in this chapter, uh, the chapter is about the, the man's process of, of restoration of spiritual vision and I say a process because it doesn't happen all at once when the light of the world comes to his life, he is physically healed all at once but the opening of his spiritual eyes is a bit slow and the best way to trace his healing is to trace his changes in his understanding of who Jesus is and the best way to see that is to trace how he addresses Jesus what he calls Jesus throughout the chapter So look down to verse 12. But when the Jews call Jesus a man, well, the blind man doesn't contradict the authorities. Even after his healing, Jesus is still really just a man to him. But he's called in for questioning, and as the conflict, um, uh, 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 as, as the Pharisees confront him, his understanding changes a bit. It's often the confrontations that sharpen our thinking, isn't it? And by the end of the first interrogation, in verse seventeen, look what he calls Jesus. He calls Jesus a prophet. And the authorities then talk to his parents, then he they, they call him again in the second interrogation. And there they call Jesus a sinner. For no one should heal on the Sabbath day. The man now defends Jesus. He says he's not a sinner. He is a man sent from God in verse 33 if this man were not from God he could do nothing and after that he's thrown out of the synagogue and this is when Jesus finds a man and asks the question that he still asks us today in verse 35 do you believe in the son of man he asks and Jesus offers the way for his sight spiritual sight to be completely restored through faith in him And he answers, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. He wants to believe in the Son of Man. He says, please, uh, let me know who this person is. He wants his spiritual sight to be restored, opened. And he at this time calls Jesus Sir, Kurios in Greek, which could be translated as Lord. But we're not 100% sure if he completely understands who Jesus is. He just says, Sir, Kurios. And Jesus answers in verse 37. He says, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one who's speaking to you. The man who was surrounded by pitch black all of his life, from the moment of his birth, now sees the light of the world. And Jesus says, You have now seen him. And the man then answers appropriately, There is no doubt what that sir means, what that kurios means in verse 38. And NIV translates it rightly. It is most certainly Lord. He says, Lord, I believe. And he does something that no man should do, should do to another man. He falls down. He prostrates. And he worships Jesus. As his Lord. But if you ask, but how? How did he come to see Jesus? When the Pharisees, his parents, and even most of his disciples actually still do not recognize who Jesus is. And the answer must be, as it always is uh, with our salvation, it's because of God's act of mercy pure grace that is offered to the man. As I was reading this, I was astonished by how little this man does. He doesn't really do very much in the story. He doesn't really deserve it. In fact, he seems to be almost sleepwalking through the whole story. Even after he opens his eyes, he doesn't seem, his life doesn't seem to have, have changed all that much. In fact, there's no difference between verse 7 and 8, Verse 7 that describes life before and verse 8 that describes life after. When the neighbors ask him who healed him, he simply says, well, I, I, I don't know. It doesn't seem like he sought out Jesus. He doesn't go back to the spot and searches for Jesus afterwards when his eyes are healed. And when he's kicked out of the synagogue, it's not him who goes after Jesus. It's Jesus who searches after him. He comes to him he wants to open his spiritual eyes, in verse 35. It's out of Christ's kindness, Christ sought him out and opened his eyes. Certainly not because he did anything. It's a pure act of grace, as our salvation always is. We don't deserve it, but God generously and graciously gives it to us. If you had to say that he did anything in this story, I guess you could say he accepted Jesus' offer. He doesn't refuse his Savior's offer because he knows he's blind. He knows he's in need of great help. His world is dark and hopeless and his hands are gladly open to receive help. And Jesus, remember, said, it's not the healthy who needs a doctor, it's the sick. He came for the sick. Mark 2.17 So the question that I want to ask you, the first question I want to ask you is, are you a rich person, or are you a beggar in front of Jesus? You know, Asians in restaurants fight over who will pay for the bill. Well, that cannot characterize our relationship with Jesus. As Jesus, in front of Jesus, we're always beggars. Our hands are always open to receive His grace. And that is the only way we can receive God's salvation to us. And only those who also know that they're blind can open their eyes, can see. So go down to verse uh, 39. For judgment I have come into the world, so that the blind will see, and those who will see will become blind. It's because that the man knew that he was blind. He could see. Because he needs the light of life to come, Jesus opened his eyes. We come humbly before Jesus. William Booth has once said that evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We're all beggars who stand with our hands open to receive God's grace. And we stand knowing that we do not have anything to offer, for every good and perfect gift comes from God. Everything that we have comes from God. We stand knowing that we have, we are, we're blind, that we're stumbling in our way of living, that we're mired in our sin and in need, in deep need, of God's forgiveness to us. Humility that receives God's offer of grace. God's unconditional grace. That is the treatment for blindness. Well, if that's the treatment for blindness, then what causes people to remain blind? Why is it that some people see who Jesus is and others reject him? So they receive the same facts And hear the same gospel. And in John chapter 9, it's only one person, the blind man, who goes home seeing, who goes home with his eyes opened. I think there are hints in this passage to us. So, first, it's people's rules and their ideas of how God is supposed to be that prevents people from seeing Jesus. So, if you look to verse 14, it was the Pharisees' legalism that stand in the way. They say, Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was, a, was Sabbath. And some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Can you see how absurd the situation is? A man with congenital blindness. This man had never seen anything in his life. He's healed. The man now sees. But the only thing that the Pharisees can see is this one broken rule. He's not supposed to heal on the Sabbath day. He can't be from God. He must be a sinner, they say. Well, strictly speaking, Jesus had broken two sabbatical traditions. First, he healed on the Sabbath day and he's not supposed to, you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath day, except you can do, only heal when life is in danger. And secondly, he needed, he, he sped and, and, and with, with this little mud, he made this little thing there, and you're not supposed to make anything on the Sabbath day either. So he broke two rules. But I must point out that these are not biblical injunction prohibitions, but traditional ones. These rules aren't actually in the Bible. The Pharisees set up rules as fence posts around the law so so to prevent themselves actually coming close to breaking the law. So these are their rules and their tradition. It was a way to protect themselves from coming close to breaking it. I think it's a way they made sense out of the law, out of the Bible. The Bible was given, the law was given, And they understand it in this way, according to their traditions. There was also a way they made sense out of God, who God was and what God wanted from them. In a way, these traditions made God manageable. And I know it's a cliche, but I think it's an accurate description of what happened. They put their box of understanding of who God is around God. And Jesus broke, all, broke out of that box in all kinds of ways. They couldn't see the miracle. Because they couldn't make sense out of Jesus. They were so tied to their rules and their understanding. They could not believe Jesus was, uh, Jesus was from God. He must be a sinner. Now, Pharisees, of course, aren't an extinct breed we miss God all the time because we fit God into our own little understandings as well think about all the things that you know about God you understand about God that's not biblical that's not from the Bible God helps those who help themselves that's not in the Bible the Bible says God's mercy and grace is unconditional it's given to you for free If I work hard for God, God will honor me with a rewarding life. That is true of the eternal life that God promises. But Christ promises hardship. If you follow Him, you have to pick up the cross and follow Him. How about if I tithe, God will bless me materially? Well, once again, the reward, the treasure in heaven is certain, but The promise of the earthly blessing is uncertain. God will not allow good people to suffer. Well, was Job a bad person? Is that why he suffered? But if I live a good life, then God will let let me into heaven. Aren't we all fallen short, far short, of the glory of God? These are some of the ways, but there are hundreds of ways that we misunderstand God. There are understandings that are not biblical. And we sometimes reject God who has come to our lives because of these misunderstandings. Some people get cynical uh, about God and sometimes lose their faith when difficulties come to their lives. Some of us go on thinking that sharing the gospel with family and friends and colleagues is not an urgent matter because, after all, they're good people. And God, will, that God must let them into heaven. Some of us believe that we cannot be forgiven because something that we have done is just so bad that God cannot forgive me for what I have done. And we miss God's amazing grace that's given to us. We're so tied to our understanding of the law, our understanding of God. We miss God. We miss Christ completely. Do you have uh, an understanding of how God is supposed to work in your life? And are you sure that they are biblical or are they just your own own understandings? I'm going to give you uh, three uh, reasons why uh, people remain in darkness. One was rules and understanding we have about God. Secondly, we see in the story uh, why people remain in blindness is the fear of hardship or turn for the worse. Well, after the first interrogation with the blind man, his parents are called in to verify the fact that he was blind and now now he sees. And Pharisees ask them, ask the parents, how it is that their son sees and their only answer is, well, ask him. He's, 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 a, he's a grown man, ask him. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Someone who healed your child from congenital blindness, wouldn't you do everything to search for him, to look for him and to thank him? They're not willing to defend Jesus. They're not really willing even to defend their son. They remain in spiritual blindness because they are afraid of hardship that they might possibly face. Look down to verse 22. The Jewish leaders decided that anyone who acknowledges that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, would be put out of the synagogue. Well, they're afraid aren't they? of the authorities and it is a big deal it's a serious matter to be kicked out of the worshipping community the synagogue it meant that you were no longer part of God's chosen community it meant being deprived of sense of belonging and history it meant lost social standing being an outcast from society so even though Jesus had cured their son of blindness they walk away from Jesus And away from their son, they fear hardship. They have a comfortable life now, and they don't want to change. And we see many people around us like this as well. For many people, it's not that Christianity doesn't make sense to them; it's that they don't want to leave their lifestyle, their comfort, what they have right now. They don't want to change. They want. They don't want to count the cost of being a disciple of Christ. I have in mind a person who has told me that he thinks that Christianity is true. He can believe it. It, can make sense. it makes sense to him. He can believe that Jesus came down from heaven, uh, born of the Virgin Mary. He, he, he died on the cross and he rose again on the third day. He says it makes sense to him. Uh, to, to him. But he lives with his girlfriend. And he knows that becoming a Christian means um, stop living with her. And that's too painful. to to him it's too costly he remains at an arm's distance from Jesus because following Jesus means facing things he doesn't want to face for many intellectual problems is just an excuse really the reason why they don't come to Christ is because their attachment to their lifestyle to their sins the fear of pain and the hardship of leaving them John 3.19 said, Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Well, the first was our misunderstandings about who God was. Second, fear of hardship and change. And the third, and the most obvious reason this text gives, uh, uh, as a reason why people remain in blindness, is their pride, is their hubris. Some people think that they know it already. They've heard it all. They know Jesus. They know Christianity. They think they already see, so therefore they miss Christ. Once again, verse 41 If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. Jesus, of course, is talking about the Pharisee who claim, they think, they already see, they know God already. It doesn't help that they are highly educated uh, people with lots of theological training and in leadership position in their religious community. There are modern day teachers, ministers, missionaries, professors. They do, in fact, know a lot about religion. But they're puffed up in their knowledge. They fail to see Jesus when he comes. And we cannot trust everyone who claims to have spiritual insight. They claim um, every claim must be measured against this book, against the Bible. And sometimes with those with numerous academic degrees and positions of religious power know less truth about the simple religious inquirer who comes before Jesus. And many who are puffed up in their knowledge stand against Jesus from a theologically informed standpoint. They are aggressive because of their certainty. Because they claim to know, because they claim to see, their guilt remains. And while leading a Christianity Explore table, um, a while ago Christianity Explored uh, I met a man um, and he made his first impression this way he came to Christianity Explored which is really a, a course designed to uh, help non-Christians uh, explore the Christian faith well he came to this group and he pulled out his Greek Bible and when we went around the, the, the table reading one verse by one uh, verse by verse he refused, to tra- uh, he refused to read the NIV in front of him he he, he he insisted that he uh, translate from the greek bible that he had it was clear that he knew a lot about the bible but in the next seven weeks he couldn't see who jesus was because he assumed that he knew more than me but that's not a big problem but he knew he assumed that he he knew more than the bible he assumed that he knew more than the people who wrote the bible He assumed that he had already figured out Christianity. And Jesus was just a man to him. He concluded already. And he missed seeing Jesus completely. Because he wouldn't give Christ a chance. And I'm sure you have friends like this. They refuse our invitation to come to to the church because they think they know Christianity already. They know what it's all about. They have made up their minds about it but before you get complacent these words aren't just for people out there remember the pharisees were the ultimate insiders they were at the heart of the religious community and for many of us this attitude applies to us when we believe we know better than the bible when we do not stand under the authority of scripture but stand over it, stand in judgment over it. When we say this book is outdated, old, and irrelevant, and we pick and choose which verses to obey, which verses to apply to our lives, we become blind, and we do not see the truth that God is revealing to us, to our lives. But as we continue we go back to the blind man whose eyes were opened. And towards the middle of the story, it becomes evident that it's the Pharisees who, become, who remain blind and do not see the truth. And we see this in many, many ways. They contradict Jesus, who said it wasn't because of this man's sin. Um, that his, uh, th- This man, or his parents' sin, that he was blind. In verse 3, when people ask him, is this because... Is he blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? Jesus says, well, no, no, no. It's not because of, not because of either. But the Pharisees pronounce the guilt of the man towards the end. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us, they say. And as the result of their blindness, um, the man is thrown out of the synagogue. He loses his identity, meaning, purpose, indeed, life itself. He's thrown out of everything that he knows about God. But of course, this isn't the end of the story. In his mercy, Jesus searches after him. Verse 35. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And then he opens his eyes completely. And the light floods in to his sight. Jesus says... You have now seen him, the light of the world. And the response, once again, is spontaneous. He prostrates. He worships Jesus. He shouts, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. The end, the purpose of our lives, isn't just simply seeing Jesus. The recognition of who Jesus is always, always ends in worship. It naturally ends in praise. When the man sees who Jesus is, when his spiritual eyes are open with belief, he worships Jesus. At the moment he gained his identity, meaning and purpose, he worshiped Jesus. Jesus didn't simply just give him sight, he gave him life. And his response is worship. He falls And Jesus is now his God, and he worships him. That is the end of our encounter with Jesus as well. Worship. And it's true that John mentions this short period as a moment of worship. And worship, in one sense, is designated time. period of time when we focus on God and worship. But the biblical view of worship is much wider, isn't it? It's not just Sundays. It's not just what we do when we come together as a church. Worship involves our entire lives. It's about how we live, not about how we sing. And Paul expresses the best, I think, in Romans. Well, at the end of 11 chapters of discussing how God saves, he ends with this doxology. If you can turn to Romans 11.33. 30, Let's read it together. Romans 11.33. He ends with this doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has ever given to God, that God should repay him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That praise is worship. Yes? But Paul doesn't just end there. It continues in chapter 12. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. The man who was blind worshipped in view of God's mercy. And in the same way, in view of God's mercy, we worship, we offer our bodies, we offer our lives as living sacrifices. In view of God's worship, in view of what God has done in Christ, we worship by not conforming to the pattern of this world but by being transformed, by the renewing of our minds. And we live according to His good, pleasing, and perfect will. All of our lives. That is worship. And that's what this man does when he sees Jesus. And that's what it means to live with our spiritual eyes open. We worship by offering our lives in the light of Christ. I think the praise team is going to come up and lead us in singing Amazing Grace. There's that amazing line there, isn't there? I once was blind, now I see. What a joy it must have been from the blind man to see the greens and the blues and reds and, and the oranges of this world. But it wasn't just that he gained his sight that day. He gained eternal life. He saw Jesus. And as we let the light of Christ, who has died for us on the cross, flood our sight and our vision, let's worship Him this week, but also with our entire lives. Amen.